I'm Don Merrill, and I'm talking with Richard Rothstein. Mr. Rothstein is a research associate with the Economic Policy Institute. Mr. Rothstein, welcome. Thank you. The first question I have for you, Mr. Rothstein, is, is have you always been interested in social policy as it relates to race relations in cities like Ferguson, Missouri? Well, for many years I was a policy analyst in issues of education. I was the education columnist in the New York Times for a period, for example. And I've always found that it's not going to be possible to close the black-white achievement gap as long as children are in segregated schools, because when you concentrate children with disadvantages, children who come from homes where the parents are not very literate, or children who have to move around a lot because their housing is unstable, or children who have um, problems like lead poisoning that uh, impedes their cognitive development. If you have a few children like that in the classroom, the teacher can devote special attention to those children and try to remediate some of their problems. But if you have whole classrooms filled with disadvantaged children, then the whole level of instruction declines. Uh, classes spend more time on remediation, less on instruction. There are more disciplinary problems from children who come to school very stressed. And so the level of instruction, the achievement of students is going to be lower. Well, you can't desegregate schools unless you desegregate neighborhoods, because the reason that most schools in this country, especially in large metropolitan areas, are segregated is because their neighborhoods are segregated. And so I began to look into the reasons why neighborhoods are so segregated in our metropolitan areas, and I discovered and learned that the reason is that public policy, state, federal, and local policy, has explicitly, with racially explicit intent, segregated our metropolitan areas by race. And unless we reverse that segregation, we're not going to be able to improve the outcomes for children who are disadvantaged and close the achievement gap, which is a goal that we all say we uh, embrace. Right. So I really came to this because of my interest in education. I, I want to talk about that a little bit. Now, you wrote a significant article uh, for the Economic Policy Institute about why Ferguson happened. And you lay out point by point your view of those public policy failings. Uh, but in cities where there has been historic racial tension, is that an unchanging recipe that guarantees the kind of problems in other cities that happened in Ferguson? Yes, certainly. Uh, Ferguson is no different. The St. Louis metropolitan area is no different from other metropolitan areas in the country. The same kinds of explicit, racially purposed public policies, state, local, and federal policies, that segregated the St. Louis metropolitan area, segregated other areas. For example, in Baltimore, which is the most recent example of, of violence that flared up after uh, the police killing of an African-American man, Baltimore was historically segregated both by local and the federal government. Back in the early 20th century, Baltimore, like St. Louis, adopted an ordinance preventing African-Americans from living on blocks where whites predominated. When those ordinances were found to be invalid, Baltimore, like St. Louis, developed alternative policies. In Baltimore, the mayor established a committee on segregation to uh, preserve boundaries between white and black neighborhoods. The Committee on Segregation worked with housing and building inspectors to uh, find violations if any uh, African-Americans happened to move onto white blocks. 
the Committee on Segregation organized neighborhood associations. This was an official city um, government committee that was headed by the chief legal officer of the city of Baltimore. They organized neighborhood associations to circulate um, agreements between homeowners in which they mutually agreed never to sell a home to an African-American and gave each other rights of enforcement against one another. And this was done by the city government. Then the federal government uh, came into play, not only in, in St. Louis and in Baltimore, but around the country in the 1930s. There was a civilian housing shortage, and as part of the New Deal, the federal government began its first public housing efforts for civilians, uh, mostly for white civilians because there was a civilian housing shortage, but it was done on a segregated basis. The Public Works Administration and the New Deal uh, followed a policy of segregation and even created segregation where none had existed before. So in St. Louis, for example, as I wrote about Ferguson, as you mentioned, the um, city, with federal government support, uh, raised uh, two neighborhoods, one on the north side, one on the south side, that, was previous, that were previously integrated. On the north side, they built a segregated public housing project for blacks, and on the south side, they built a segregated public housing project for whites. So they created segregation when no segregation had existed before. So during World War II, when defense workers came to plants in cities that previously had very small African-American populations, the federal government built housing for those workers on a segregated basis. Particularly the West Coast, this was true because there were very small black populations in West Coast cities before the defense industry blossomed during World War II. And housing was built for those workers on a segregated basis. Public housing continued to be segregated throughout the uh, mid-20th century. In uh, 1949, President Truman proposed a National Housing Act that would vastly expand public housing, again, still primarily for white workers, not for African Americans, because it was a civilian housing shortage nationwide. And Republicans in Congress attempted to stop this program, not for racial reasons, but because they were opposed to any public involvement in the private housing market. And they came up with the device of a of, of proposing a poison pill amendment to the National Housing Act bill that Truman had asked for. Their amendment said that from that point on, this was in 1949, all public housing had to be integrated. And liberals in the Senate uh, and the House, uh, led by people like Hubert Humphrey, the senator from Minnesota, campaigned against the integration amendment because they felt that and they knew that if the integration amendment had been passed, as the Republicans intended, then Southern Democrats would vote against public housing, and there would be no public housing at all. I want to get away from the housing for a second and, and look at schools. Now, you've written several books about students and schools and class, class and schools, grading education, uh, the way we were. One of the questions that I have about schools is schools seem to be a focal point for racial tension, whether it's budgeting or district lines or curriculum. And it seems that if society is going to tackle discrimination, as you say in your piece, um, schools would be a key place to start. But the work of focusing effort and fixing those racial tensions never seems to begin in schools. And instead, it seems we hear the same platitudes over and over. Why, why is that? Well, if I understand your question, it's why can't we solve these problems by uh, reforming schools. And I don't think you can reform schools so long as they are segregated. As we've known for many, many years, uh, 
African-American children in segregated schools perform much worse than they do when they are in integrated schools. And the reason is that when you concentrate students with social and economic disadvantages, whether it's because their parents aren't very literate, they don't read to them as much, or because they're under great stress, because they live in a, a violent neighborhood, uh, or it's because they move around a lot because their parents have low incomes and unstable housing, or because their families are disrupted because of unemployment for any of those reasons. When you concentrate children like that in single classrooms, they can't get the special attention they need, and the overall level of instruction has to drop. The teachers have to spend much more time on remediation and less on grade level instruction. So you can never get the kinds of outcomes in segregated schools that you can get if disadvantaged children are dispersed throughout the general population and attend integrated schools. You know, we have poor white children in this country as well, but poor white children aren't concentrated in poor white ghettos. They attend schools that are middle class, and they are families who are low income within middle class communities. If African American children had those same opportunities, their achievement would rise. One thing that struck me about your piece was how you were not afraid to use the word ghetto. I haven't heard that word since the 80s. It's been sanitized with words like inner city or underprivileged communities or economic empowerment zones. Why did you revive the word ghetto? Well, I didn't revive it. It's been sanitized, as you say, and it's, we've forgotten the whole history of how neighborhoods throughout metropolitan areas in this country have been segregated. And one of the ways we forget it is we figure out ways to talk about it without mentioning the reality. We're not afraid to describe Eastern European communities where Jews were concentrated as ghettos. We know what ghettos are. Ghettos are neighborhoods where people of a single race or ethnicity are concentrated and where there are barriers to exit. And that's exactly what we have in this country. We have neighborhoods where African Americans are concentrated. They've been concentrated by public policy. And because of those public policies, there are barriers to their exit. Those are ghettos, and we should name them for what they are, because unless we recognize how these communities were created as segregated neighborhoods, unless we talk it, name it, and tell it like it is, we're never going to come up with solutions to reverse the segregation. And as I mentioned, if we don't come up with solutions to reverse the segregation, children in those neighborhoods will not flourish. You know, Mr. Rothstein, throughout the 60s and 70s and 80s, there were reports at every level of government about how discriminatory policies were being perpetrated by government and what needed to be done. All these committees and commissions were established to lay out guidelines for how these problems could be fixed. Why was there an effort to create those reports, but it seems no political will to enforce their recommendations? Well, you're absolutely correct. The, the most prominent of those commissions was the Kerner Commission, which was appointed by President Johnson in 1968 to examine over 100 riots that took place in cities across the country the previous year. Almost every one of them was provoked by uh, police uh, killing or injuring an unarmed African-American man. And the report documented extensively the things I've been talking to you about, how public housing, how federal housing administration policies had segregated metropolitan areas, how local governments had denied services to those areas uh, where African Americans lived in order to turn them into slums. It documented this extensively in over 100 cities. 
And everybody said, well, we need to address these problems, but first we have to end the violence. And once we end the violence, we'll deal with the underlying problems. Well, the violence ended, and we've never dealt with the underlying problems. And I suspect the same thing is happening today. We've responded to Ferguson and to Baltimore and to Cleveland and to New York and many, many other cities by reforming or attempting to reform their police departments. But we're only dealing with symptoms because so long as you concentrate disadvantaged families in single areas where there's no opportunity, where there's distance from jobs, where there's resulting high unemployment rates and um, high poverty rates, uh, the same problems are going to flare up again. And unless we deal with the underlying problems, no matter how gentle the police are, we're going to have ongoing instances like we've had in Ferguson and Baltimore. Right. You essentially say the problem in Ferguson, even though it has been the focus of a federal investigation, you say those problems have basically been papered over by the administration as being an isolated incident rather than, you know, indicative of a systemic problem. What does the federal government get out of downplaying the national problem? Well, it's politically difficult. Uh, once we've forgotten this history, once we've forgotten how government has segregated neighborhoods, people have come to the belief, uh, even well-intentioned people have come to the belief that we've the segregation of metropolitan areas, the existence of an almost all-black community like Ferguson, is something they call de facto. There's the accident of the fact that people don't have enough money to move to middle-class neighborhoods or private prejudice or real estate agents who, who steer people to neighborhoods of the same race as themselves or white flight, or any number of other uh, difficult-to-define uh, phenomena. And it's a myth. It's untrue. This, the segregation is not primarily the result of these factors, although all these factors play a role. The segregation is the result of explicit public policy. Ferguson was created by public policy. When um, African Americans were concentrated in uh, downtown St. Louis, with no options to live throughout the metropolitan area. The neighborhood became overcrowded. Uh, they, uh, families had to double up in order to pay rent because the rents were much higher for similar housing than they were in white neighborhoods simply because the supply relative to demand was so small. The neighborhood, the city of St. Louis uh, withdrew public services from the neighborhood. It became slums. The city of St. Louis then embarked on a slum clearance program. They demolished the black neighborhoods in, in the central downtown St. Louis and built the Gateway Arch, which has become a symbol of the city. They built freeway interchanges to bring white suburbanites into the, their jobs in the city. Uh, they built uh, university extensions. The black families had to go somewhere. They uh, were given, in some cases, some of them were given vouchers by the federal government to help them rent apartments elsewhere in the St. Louis area. But the only places where the vouchers were accepted were in communities where, that were bordering the former ghetto. And so Ferguson was one of the places that where vouchers were accepted. Gradually, it became more and more black, and the ghetto in downtown St. Louis was simply shifted north to uh, places like Ferguson. So this was not the accident of uh, uh, benign uh, policies or private actions. This was explicit federal government policy. So it seems also that gentrification, you hear a lot about gentrification in the news here recently. It seems that gentrification is the latest iteration of, of those policies from, from 50 and 60 years ago. Well, that's true. The gentrification 
typically takes place when neighborhoods have deteriorated, primarily because of, of the factors I've been describing, of low-income families being locked in and not and denied opportunities uh, to move throughout the metropolitan area, become revitalized. And uh, when they become revitalized, unless there are policies in place to ensure that a proportion of the neighborhood remains accessible to low and moderate income families, it gradually shifts from a low-income neighborhood to a more desirable middle-class neighborhood, and the families who used to live there can no longer afford to live there, and the ghetto simply shifts without making provision either to preserve a share of housing in those neighborhoods for moderate and uh, low-income families, or to make provisions for families who are displaced to move into middle-class communities where they can be integrated and not overwhelm them. And uh, it just simply perpetuates the racial separation that we have now. You know, that really fascinates me because when it comes to social change, I always wonder where is the impetus for that change? Is it with lawmakers or with citizens? You say that uh, the white flight phenomena that's been used as the explanation for why there was this population shift in the cities is too simplistic. Um, and, and so I, you know, I wonder when whites leave the suburbs, that didn't create the policy infrastructure that encouraged the discrimination, but instead it was bolstered by those policies. You mean when whites left for the suburbs? Yes. Yeah. Well, that was inspired primarily by federal housing policy. Beginning in the 1940s, as the, especially after World War II, as the civilian housing shortage uh, abated, the Federal Housing Administration financed uh, mass production builders to develop subdivisions on condition, and this was a Federal Housing Administration condition, on condition that none of the homes in those suburban subdivisions be sold to African Americans. The most typical case, the one that's most well-known, is probably Levittown in New York. 17,000 homes built with construction loans guaranteed by the Federal Housing Administration on condition that no homes be sold to African Americans. Uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with a song by Melvina Reynolds that Pete Seeger used to sing about houses on a hillside made of ticky-tacky. Well, that describes another one of those uh, developments financed by the Federal Housing Administration south of San Francisco on condition that no homes be sold to African Americans. So you have the situation that I was describing before of public housing, both for whites and blacks when there was a housing shortage. When the housing shortages and materials became available for civilian housing and uh, construction, the federal government subsidized the movement of white families out of those public housing projects, out of urban areas, into single-family homes in the suburbs. Homes in Levittown or Daly City, south of San Francisco, or any of the thousands of other subdivisions uh, in suburban areas around the country could be purchased by returning World War II veterans or by working class and lower middle class white families uh, for prices that the, the monthly carrying charges were less than they were paying in public housing for rent. So it was an enormous subsidy that the federal government was giving them. And the purpose of this to create suburbs, it, um, it, it forced white, not forced, but incentivized white families to leave urban areas. And gradually in public housing projects, for example, like in, in St. Louis, uh, the white projects had many vacancies. The black projects had long waiting lists because those families had no options to move to the suburbs, even though they were doing similar jobs to many of the white workers. Uh, 
eventually, with the large vacancies in the white projects, they admitted blacks to them, and the public housing projects became all black. The jobs then moved away from the city as well into the suburbs, and so the, the families who remained in the inner city, the black families in public housing and elsewhere, had less access to jobs, became more impoverished, and the segregation became um, a permanent factor of, of 20th century life. You know, in your Economic Policy Institute piece, you talk about how the white community of Berkeley wanted to separate itself from the black community of Kinlock, mostly around schools in the 1930s. I lived in Cincinnati for a time, and I know the neighborhood of Cumminsville was wiped out by a freeway project in the 30s and 40s, and the segregated community of Vanport here in Portland was established around the same time. What was it about that time that seemed to kick off this wave of embedded discriminatory policies in communities across the country? Well, uh, two things happened. One is the federal government and the New Deal became much more involved in the economic life of the country in the housing field, so that was one thing that happened. But secondly, uh, the New Deal was comprised of a coalition of northern and southern Democrats, and southern Democrats would not support the New Deal economic programs unless they were segregated. The northern Democrats went along with that, uh, partially uh, because they had to in order to maintain the coalition and partly because of their own racial views. And so both factors, the involvement of the federal government for the first time and the racial attitudes of federal government officials, contributed to the beginning of this very aggressive federal effort to segregate metropolitan areas. You say that neighborhoods uh, that appear to be integrated are almost always in some form of transition. And I'm confused about that because on one hand, I hear that neighborhoods are becoming more segregated, and at the same time, I read that millennials are looking for integrated neighborhoods. So is there such a thing as a truly integrated neighborhood? And in your experience, what denotes an integrated neighborhood? Well, there are some integrated neighborhoods, very few. Um, there's a community in, Mon in New Jersey called Montclair. There's actually one in St. Louis, University City. There are some integrated neighborhoods. But I would define an integrated neighborhood as one which has an African-American population that's plus or minus 10% the metropolitan area average. So if you have a community like the St. Louis metropolitan area where the African-American population is probably 20% uh, of, uh, of the population overall, I consider integrated neighborhood one where which had in that metropolitan area between 10 and 30 percent African Americans, and there are very few of those. Uh, the what happens is you mentioned a few minutes ago is when neighborhoods gentrify, they seem to be integrated for a time being because white middle class families are moving in to a previously mostly black, lower-income neighborhood, and so it looks like it's integrated. But unless policies are in place to stabilize the neighborhood and to ensure that some housing remains that is available to low- and moderate-income families, over time it becomes less and less integrated, more and more white. Meanwhile, the reverse happens as the displaced families move into previously white inner ring suburbs, as in Ferguson. Uh, it seems integrated. It seemed more integrated uh, 30 years ago than it does now. Gradually, as families in, in St. Louis downtown were uh, forced out, uh, they moved to places like Ferguson, which initially were integrated as they moved and gradually became more and more African-American. You know, there are five federally recognized minority groups, Pacific Islanders, Asians, Hispanics, American Indians, and blacks. 
But throughout your piece, you say almost all of these policies have been directed at blacks. Have you discovered why it seems cities and states haven't focused the same discriminatory efforts at other groups have they, as they have at blacks? I mean, why are blacks the bellwether in our society? Well, we have a history of slavery. These other groups weren't enslaved. So we have African-Americans have a different racial history in this country than other minority groups. Other minority groups may be uh, at times low income, especially if they're recent immigrants. They may concentrate in ethnic neighborhoods, as did previous immigrants of all kinds in American history. When, when Italians and Irish and Jews first migrated to this country, they settled in um, ethnic neighborhoods. They weren't segregated neighborhoods because they weren't enforced by public policy the way that African-American ghettos were created. So we need to distinguish between minority groups that are separate or live separately because they're low income or because they're recent immigrants, uh, but not because of uh, public policy, from the one minority group which has been segregated almost entirely by public policy. You know, and who's, I'm sorry, and whose lower income was created by that public policy. You know, your, explana uh, your exploration is exhaustive and it's intensely data-driven, but it reminds me of that euphemism, don't confuse me with the facts. So how do, we, how do we use this to give people empathy? Because it seems the only real social change happens uh, when people can relate to oppressed people. I mean, does that, does that seem like something that all of these reports and studies can, can do? I mean, is it getting us any closer to that? Well, I don't know. All I can do is try to remind people of this history because I think many well-intentioned people, in fact, most well-intentioned people in this country, uh, do not understand that our segregation is the product of explicit intentional public policy. They believe the de facto myth. And I don't believe that it would be possible to develop political support for policies of desegregation if people don't understand that uh, the segregation itself was uh, created by public policy and was therefore unconstitutional and requires a constitutional remedy. Uh, desegregation is not simply a nice policy choice. It's a, an obligation that we have to preserve uh, our Constitution. And uh, if people begin to understand that, begin to understand the history, there might be more public support for policies to remedy it. I can't guarantee that that will happen, but I certainly think that's a precondition for it happening. What's your next project, Mr. Rothstein? Oh, I'm going to continue working on this. I hope there won't be uh, more police killings that will force me to describe the specific forms that these public policies took in the cities where they took place. But uh, what I'm doing is uh, writing and researching about the uh, various forms in which federal, state, and local policy uh, created racial segregation as an explicit policy, and hoping to educate uh, uh, my readers and the uh, people who follow the Economic Policy Institute and others to this history so that they will come to think about how we can undo the segregation that we've created. Mr. Rothstein, I really appreciate the time, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Don Merrill, and I've been talking with Richard Rothstein. Mr. Rothstein is a research associate with the Economic Policy Institute.